don't figure out who in your space is good and try to be better than they are. Figure out what space is the best at each facet and try to be as good as the best player in each space. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. Today, you'll hear an episode from our Takeover Tuesday series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sanger Molly says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram, yo, welcome to another fun Tuesday takeover series. If you're listening to the podcast for a long time, you know that Tuesdays are fun because we have somebody else running the show and they bring some incredible, incredible guests. So today I have Dave Knox, who wrote the book on predicting the term and he has his own podcast and he has been interviewing some incredible people. So we just got on a literal call and we just shortlisted the four episodes we wanted to play on Flip My Funnel. So first of all, Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Sangram, it's always awesome to talk with you and thank you for the opportunity to uh, co-host this with you. Yeah, man, it's going to be fun. So tell us the theme of this whole series and the types of people you plan to interview and just give us a little more insight into the very first interview. Yeah, so the the whole theme of this is going to be about disruption. And the lens I want to take, because there's plenty of people to talk about disruption and what that looks at, is I want to get all sides of the table of how people are thinking about this topic of how industries are changing. Because that's the world I've lived in. I've been sitting in one foot in venture capital entrepreneurship and one foot in the Fortune 500 and big companies. So the interviews are going to be looking at both sides of that table. How are some of the marketing leaders out there thinking about how change is taking place both as a function, but also as an industry? How are practitioners putting that into practice and thinking about that? And then how investors are looking at that? Because a great VC and a great investor, they're looking at where a world is changing five to 10 years from now. And I think there's amazing things us as marketers can learn looking at all of those spectrums together. And that is fantastic. I think disruption is a way and some mindset for people to think about. So who's the first person you're going to interview on this topic? Yeah. So the first interview is going to be one of my favorite chief marketing officers out there. And it's a guy named Jeff Weiser, who is the CMO of Shopify. You know, obviously his company needs no introduction. It is unlocking a wave of entrepreneurship. And what I love about Jeff is he actually comes from a background that is much more on the data analytics side and how analytics can lead to this new trend of performance marketing and everything of that nature. So he comes from that background, having worked in a lot of spaces that were not traditional brand building, but were driven by numbers, nuts and bolts. How do we drive a user into the business? So he's got a lot to learn. And he kind of talks about he he fell into the role of the CMO because he kept getting pulled more and more into strategic discussions around the business. I love that, man. A lot of the listeners are either in marketing or sales or leadership position. And there seems to be no bigger company making a lot of noise than Shopify and the growth is just stellar. So let's go. Today, I am joined with a great marketing leader, Jeff Weiser from Shopify. 
who recently joined as their chief marketing officer. Jeff has a great background across the world of the evolution of marketing and excited to have him join the call. So, Jeff, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you. Well, I want to start talking a little bit about your career. You, for the last decade, have really been leading strategy and analytics for groups that specialize in marketing optimization with companies like Beachbody and Yahoo and Social Gaming Network and even MySpace back in the day. But then you went broader across all of the marketing uh, with roles at Shutterstock and now at Shopify. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Because it is kind of a different one for a lot of CMOs and the thread of how you've used data and technology for marketing. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. I think that, that you know, at the moment, it's uh, it's a slightly unusual path for a CMO. I think that if you fast forward five, 10 years, it'll be a much more common one. But essentially, I'm a victim of, of the idea that Quant is sort of eating the world and describe myself to, you know, to people as sort of an accidental CMO. And what I mean by that is that if you had asked me, you know, 10, 15 years ago, would you ever be in marketing? I'd say probably not. What I did was run strategy and analytics departments. And we did, you know, a whole range of things that used quant, you know, anything from basic, basic reporting, dashboarding to a lot of, you know, financial planning type work, budgeting, financial analysis, et cetera, some corp dev type things like M&A all the way up to sort of advanced predictive modeling and data science. And I was very happy doing that. And as you know, marketing became a more quantitative discipline over the last like 10, 15 years, marketers started coming to me increasingly saying things like, hey, I'm running a, you know, a, a CRM department and I'd love to have analytically derived segments. Can you help? Or I've got an $100 million budget that I need to figure out the optimal way to deploy it. Can you help? And I'd say, uh, I don't really know, but the marketing group, like the quant group will be happy to take a look at it. Um, and as we did, and as we gave data-driven advice, marketers started to get good results. And so companies were like, well, you know, these marketers are doing kind of well when they use the analytics. Why don't we try moving one marketing group directly under Jeff? And so I took a CRM group on and, and we doubled the revenue in the first two years. And I'm like, oh, that was pretty good. Why don't we try moving an acquisition group under Jeff? And so like every year I would sort of um, kind of chip away a little bit marketing. And so the line between like what was font and what was marketing was awfully blurred. And then, uh, you know, I was still surprised when my phone started ringing with offers um, to be a CMO, but I decided to go for it because, you know, it let me sort of complete a career pivot, uh, not live in, in two worlds at once. And, you know, I really think that, that increasingly, you, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and lose the creative element as well. But I do think that increasingly marketing will be driven by the ones and zeros. And so it, it just made a lot of sense. And uh, I've been able to sort of you know, bring that bring that analytical discipline to the marketing side and pick up a bunch of new skills along the way that I didn't have on the creative side. So it's, it's been really good. Very cool. And, you know, related to that, a lot of marketers will come up from a silo. You know, yours is a unique one that's growing in importance, um, you know, whether it's creative or analytic or brand. And suddenly one day you're supposed to be leading all of these different functions when you get that stripe as a VP or as a CMO. How do you prepare yourself for leading those functions of marketing where you didn't necessarily grow up in or have a deep experience in? Right. It's a, it's a good question. You know, I, I've always been of the mindset that you don't need to be a functional expert in everything that you manage. If that were the case, you'd never have CEOs, right? And so... You know, I, I think that, that leadership skills will get you a pretty decent bit of the way, meaning if we can articulate pretty clearly what we expect out of a given area and can set up measurements, quantitative or qualitative, it really can be either, that indicates success, 
then at least we know what the expectations for that discipline are. Then it's a matter of going out and getting an expert who's got a track record of delivering those outcomes in the past and being a good leader to them. So I don't really think you need to know, you know, hands-on keyboard, how to do everything that you manage. That said, when I first made the leap from being a quantitative marketer to being a full-fledged CMO, I did pick up a lot of skills I didn't have from learning from the people who were in those positions. And so a lot of that just came down to, I think, intellectual humility and being willing to raise my hand and say, hey, even though I manage you, I don't really know all that much about product marketing or brand marketing or whatever it was. And, you know, I've got like 50,000 questions on it I'd love for you to answer. And by being a student of those disciplines and of those people, even when I manage them, you know, I was able to, to learn it pretty quickly and, and sort of round out my marketing expertise. And then when I went into my next CMO role, I was much better prepared to weigh in on the substance of disciplines outside of quantitative marketing, not just lead them from a managerial perspective. That makes sense. You mentioned you were kind of surprised when you started getting those calls about CMO roles. You know, if you look back, um, you know, a lot of people aspire for that CMO seat, and that's what they're building their career on. What advice would you give to somebody that that's the eventual goal that they have of ending up in a seat like yours? Great question. Um, yeah, you know, I think as I reflect on why I was so surprised, to be honest, I think that a lot of it just comes down to we're so biased by how we think of ourselves, you know, and so like, to this moment, even though I've been a, you know, a CMO for, I don't know, I'll call it three, four years at this, at this point, you know, I, I still think of myself as an analyst, I meaning I'm wired to want to sort of break problems into constituent parts and, and put them back together as a solve. And so a lot of that had to do with the way I was looking at myself, not necessarily the way others were looking at me, meaning that there would be plenty of people who would say, oh, no, that's fine. Like, it's easy to learn. Or it's easier to learn brand marketing than to try to pick up statistics as a brand marketer, right? So I, th- so I think that was part of it. But there, you know, there was also an element of truth to it. I, me- I remember when uh, I had to announce uh, to the company I was at and the people I managed there that I was leaving after six years to take my first CMO gig. And, and, and someone said something like, oh, I heard Jeff's leaving because he got a, a, you know, a C-level title in a public company, which, you know, which was a partial truth. And so I said to him, oh, so you're going to be CFO. You know, and so like there was an element of truth that given my wiring, it was sort of CFO or CMO as the eventual path. And probably um, I had thought of myself more in the in the former bucket in terms of people who actually, unlike me, you know, know what they want to be when they grow up and are actively aspiring to this thing that I was fortunate to fall into. I would say that, that whether it's, you know, what does it take to be a CMO or what does it take to be anything? Telling people actively what you want gets you a large part of the way, meaning I'll now ask people, you know, who are more junior to me in my organization, like, like, what are your goals? What do you want to be? Right. And help them get there. But you'd be shocked at how often people haven't said to their mentors, their bosses, whoever it is, like, here's where I want to be going. Please keep in mind, like, continuously how I can get there and give me any feedback that would help. So what I tell people is, number one, articulate what it is that you want. No one can help you get there if they don't want it. And certainly don't be bashful about having ambition or aspirations, you know. And, and I say that especially to groups that are that are sort of underrepresented. I find myself saying it to women more, for example. They tend to be less forward about, about stating their ambitions. So, you know, number one is sort of uh, articulate, you know, what it is that you want. Number two is that, you know, to dial in on, on marketing specifically, I think there is an element um, in which being a polymath is becoming increasingly important. So, you know, no one's going to become an expert in all things marketing. I'm certainly not. But knowing the basics 
in the discipline across quantitative marketing and you know breaking down growth into acquisition and CRM and knowing a thing or two about brand marketing and product marketing and PR and things like that, I think is more helpful than it might be in other disciplines. Meaning if you're, you know, I'm going to get out of my, my zone here, but if you're a computer scientist, knowing the first two commands in a language may not get you very far, uh, but in marketing, it kind of will. And so I think that there's, you know, when you think about it, when people talk about being T-shaped, meaning being wide and not especially deep in one domain, I feel like marketing is a discipline where being T-shaped may help more than average. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I think the advice you gave of, you know, tell people where you want to go is so valuable. One, I was at Procter & Gamble, we used to have uh, something called the WDP, which was your work and development plan. And one of the questions was, where do you want to be six months from now? And where do you want to be three years from now? And when I started using that at other companies, it was amazing how many people were shocked that I was asking that. Because oftentimes, where do you want to be from three years from now isn't reporting to the same person in the same job. And that's like uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people have that conversation. Yeah, and I bet, I mean, you'll, you'll be in a position to answer this because you, you, you know, you, you use that framework. But did you find that a lot of people didn't even know themselves, meaning that not only had they not articulated the, the answer to you or to whoever their mentors were, but that they actually hadn't even answered it for themselves? That's what I find. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they hadn't answered it for themselves or, frankly, the self-actualization of what they want to be was what they thought they needed to do to advance at the company, not necessarily what was actually going to be personal fulfilling to them. Um, yeah, you know, and I appreciate that you're saying that. I actually had a conversation with someone within the last couple of weeks where I actually asked them, we were talking about their aspirations, and I said, okay, I want you to strip out any bias towards the idea that one area you might choose is more conducive to getting ahead. Like, let's just imagine for a minute and it may not be true, but let's just imagine that your promotion potential is equal across all disciplines. Now, where would you want to spend your time? And then we added back the, you know, after the fact, the reality that that, that that may not be true, meaning there may be an area that lends itself to your advancement more. But it's worth doing the thought experiment nonetheless, just to know what, you know, what you really enjoy doing day in, day out. You know, you mentioned that when people heard you were making the switch over to Shutterstock, you called out it was going from a private company to a public company. What have you found as the differences in that? Because I think that relates to of the aspirations of, well, I want to go after the big company because it's the big title, the big job. What have you found the differences and how do you advise people in that space? Yeah, um, great question. I really like being, in, I'll, I'll start by, by answering something you didn't specifically ask, which is that I really like working for public companies, but I think it's one of those double-edged swords where the things that I happen to like about it would probably be the very same things that someone who didn't like it would call out. And what I mean by that is that the public company, especially in a marketing role where you're likely to be spending a lot of money, calls for a lot of transparency. So I love the idea that when we spend money, we have to say pretty clearly, not only to our internal stakeholders, but also to the street, here's how we spent the money, here's why we spent the money, here's how we thought about what the right amount to spend was, and here are the results, and it'll be transparent for everyone to see. I think that that forces really clear thinking and ensures that everything you do is truly defensible because not just your manager, you know, the CEO or whomever is watching, really everyone's watching. And so I just like that transparency and accountability. You know, there may be others who don't feel like explaining themselves to the rest of the world. I've been in companies that have thought about going public and ultimately sort of put the brakes on and said, 
listen, why do we want to be, you know, explaining ourselves to a bunch of 25-year-old analysts on a call every quarter? Uh, you know, we know we know what we're doing. There's other ways to get liquidity. And so, you know, we just don't want the burden of the transparency of the public environment. So I think there's reasonable conclusions you can draw from that same set of information on either side. As a marketer, what I would say is that there's another reason that being in a public company is particularly interesting. And it has to do with the way you think about return on marketing spend. So, you know, a lot of companies will think about a return requirement on their ad spend, meaning if I'm going to spend $100 or even $1 on advertising, how much revenue or gross profit does it have to create? Meaning, what is my requirement for the productivity of marketing dollars I spend? And sometimes what happens is that when you spend the marketing dollars to acquire a customer, they don't create that revenue or gross profit contribution in the same period. Meaning I might spend to acquire you, Dave, as a customer today, but you might, you know, not contribute to a break-even point for a year or two years or five years. And in a private company, you can always optimize your marketing spend to lifetime results. Meaning if I spend to acquire you today, we go in a financial hole on that advertising event but we claw back to it in a year and are profitable in three years. No one necessarily needs to know that. But in a public company, you can end up with period mismatches, meaning I spent a lot of money to acquire customers today. They're not going to be at break even until a year from now. And now it looks like we have a mismatch on our financials between revenue and advertising spend this quarter. And so having to keep in mind simultaneously lifetime economics, and period economics and balancing the two in a public company is really, really interesting. I've been very fortunate to work for public companies that were built for the long term, meaning like there's no sense in which Shopify or Shutterstock was telling me, no, you know, optimize for what we're going to say to Wall Street this quarter. You know, they're built for the long term. Both of them, they're high growth, long term companies. But nonetheless, you know, keeping that balance of uh, the period and the lifetime in mind simultaneously is super interesting to me. Without doubt. Well, and that's an interesting analogy, too, of, you know, before the call, we were talking about the, the whole disrupting yourself and how big companies think about this. And there's this tension of not just in marketing, but overall business strategy of as the rise of activist investors and everything else, meeting those quarterly numbers, it's tough if you're sitting in the C-suite of how do you invest in the long-term of innovation and disruption while fighting against the quarter. So how have you thought about that balance? Yeah, you know, I really think about the, the, the and in a certain way, it goes back to marketing. Maybe, maybe I'm now, I've become rewired to think that way. But, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes down to so many things due to storytelling, meaning, you know, you have to have a track record of credibility for this to work. But if you can look the analyst in the eye and say, listen, you know, we spent more this quarter and it's because we're investing in something and there's some amount of detail we can give you on what that investment is in and what it will yield. But there may very well be some things we don't want to tell you about now for competitive reasons we don't want to show our hands. If you can tell a clear story about why you're doing it, what results you expected to get, and ideally where the investment is going, then if you've got credibility and a track record of following through successfully, on those reinvestments of, of capital, then, you know, I think the street will buy it. So, you know, I'll take Shopify as an example. I'm very fortunate in that when we've said we're going to reinvest our capital in growth, we've done so successfully. And therefore, I would hope we have a lot of credibility with the street, but that's not a trust you want to break. Yeah. No, without a doubt. 
So let's dig in on Shopify a little bit more. Amazing company that, you know, has what, 600,000 stores that use it, $82 billion in sales. You know, you're the epitome of the company that is, you know, selling pickaxes in the gold rush. You know, you are, as the retail industry is transforming, you guys have infrastructure that's empowering entrepreneurs and businesses of all sizes to move into e-commerce. So you've got this unique lens of where the retail industry is going. What are you seeing over the next five to 10 years? How are we going to see this transformation of what retail really means? So many people are focused on, you know, the, the directionality of trends that they forget about the magnitude. And so we've talked a lot over the last few years about e-commerce and especially the rise of D2C, you know, direct-to-consumer e-commerce. People forget that just under 90% of sales still of retail sales still happen offline. So in terms of the, the core, like the, you know, the first thing that Shopify ever did, which is make it easy to sell things on the web, you know, there's so much growth left to come. And it's just worth keeping that in mind in terms of all these, you know, retail is dead narratives. Yeah, but it's alive to the tune of like 88, 89% which is worth keeping in mind. But I think even, even if you can play, play that tape forward, which we can, and you know, it'll be 85 and then it'll be 80 and it'll be 75. We can play that tape forward, but it's, it's, it's a little bit of a simplistic narrative as well. Meaning that some of these D to C companies that, that we see, you know, I'm thinking of like your all birds and, and some of these great companies that go from nothing to huge brands overnight. A lot of them, once they've sort of skinned and disrupted direct to consumer e-commerce, go the other direction. And first, maybe they open a pop-up store. Next thing you know, they've got a retail location. And so, you know, on the one hand, we're facilitating a move of retail dollars online. But for the folks who really nail it online, we're actually moving back with them through our point of sale solutions back offline. And so I think we're, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, of, a, of a marketing or business platitude to talk about omni-channel. But I really do think that's where we're going to end up. And, you know, Shopify comes at it from one direction, but we'll be everywhere where our merchants want to sell. Yeah, no. And I think anybody that wants to say the, the mantra of retail is dead, you just need to walk down, you know, the streets of Soho and you see that every single D2C business out there, that's where they're launching. You know, they're starting the, the Bonobos and the Allbirds and they all have this physical presence because people still yeah, it's love cra- It's crazy. We love, I, and I love that. I mean, those are really my, I mean, those are really my favorite brands. And I'm still lucky because I had become, you know, maybe in the year or so before I joined Shopify, I had become like a real D2C junkie. I was like, oh, I figured it out. I can get everything, you know, better at half price without the middleman, you know, with a brand that speaks to me and way better customer service. This is incredible. And so getting to work for the platform that's effectively the outsourced supply chain for that whole industry has just been incredible. Yeah, without a doubt. And it's, uh, yeah, I think one of the power, you know, thinking about it's good to get a good brand name right from the day one. You know, Shopify itself is such a great name because people love shopping. Buying has been what's been done most of the time on e-commerce, while shopping has been a horrible experience. And Shopify is completing that discovery. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just, I love that distinction, uh, the way you said that. I hadn't necessarily thought about it in those terms, but one of the things that we, that we talk about as you know, a, a true differentiator, true differentiator for Shopify is that we let you own your brand, right? And so, you know, people will say, you know, they're going to start their business and sell on. I won't call them out, but like think about notable marketplaces, right? 
all those notable marketplaces, you can start your business there, but they probably own the branding, meaning it doesn't really look like, you know, what your brand is. They own the customer, certainly own the customer relationship. They may even be setting your prices, right? And so when I think about the difference between selling or, you know, or buying, as you say, and shopping, I really do think it's implicit in the name Shopify that we're allowing you to create a shopping experience by infusing your sales and your commerce with your brand identity. We tell the story a lot of a woman who's on the, the marketing team at Shopify who used to sell on Etsy. She sells LGBTQ apparel. And when she sold on Etsy, people would say things like, hey, thanks for selling that t-shirt, super cool. When she was able to use her personality and creativity into the store she built on Shopify, people said to her things like, I'm so glad you created this brand. I came out to my parents wearing this t-shirt. Pretty different message, but it was because we let her, you know, sort of be who she was and, and, and put it all over her commerce experience. And so um, I think the distinction between, I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but the difference between shopping and buying in that sense is very real. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh, pulling back my heritage of shopper marketing from the P&G days for sure. So, so you know, talking about that heritage, you know, your career path has really put you at the forefront of this thing called performance marketing, you know, being just a tool for direct marketers to something that everyone from CPG to retail to technology had to embrace and many times, frankly, learn. So how do you think about the intersection of performance marketing on one side and more traditional brand marketing in today's landscape? I just feel that the two areas have stopped being a dichotomy. It was, there was a time when you were either running a performance marketing operation, meaning we're going to try to attribute customers or orders back to media events. We'll ensure that based on that allocation, there's a ratio of lifetime value to spend that's productive for our economics. And that was performance marketing. Or you were sort of like, oh, I'm building a brand. Let's just you know throw a bunch of advertising at the wall and hope the whole thing comes out good. What I've noticed now, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about what's really the difference between D to C and what people used to call DR. You know, like what's really the difference? I think that they're meeting in the middle. I think the folks, you know, that we think of as the modern day D to C winners know the mathematics behind performance marketing that all the DR, the old school DR shops used to run. But they've also ingested the lesson of brand, which is like, you know, the old the old DR guys might you know, play a little trick to slip another billing through. And I think that the, 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 maybe the length of the optimization window in D2C performance marketing is just longer because there's been a realization that, yeah, you can know that map and, and run the economics, but it's a long game and you got to treat the customers well and create incredible experiences as well. And so people are actually thinking of these hybrid words. You know, I've heard people refer to branded response, right? that capture the intersection of performance marketing and direct responses we're experiencing it now. So I just see the two fusing where it's like, we understand what the math would say in a pure performance marketing scheme. We understand the incredible experiences and the identity and meaning you've got to create in the brand world. And we're going to apply our own sound judgment to create an experience that's at the intersection of the two and takes the best of both worlds. Yeah, and that's an intersection I think a lot more people need to be paying attention to. So that's a, a great way to kind of articulate it. You know, is you look at challenging yourself as a marketer and thinking about that environment and kind of a lot of what shaped you. What brands and companies out there are serving as an inspiration for you right now? 
I've thought about this a lot because I haven't been able to exactly put my finger on what's the one brand that encapsulates exactly the way I would want to do marketing. And where I've sort of netted out is that, uh, and this is, this, there's a way that uh, our CEO, Toby, thinks about this, which is really smart, which is essentially don't figure out who in your space is good and try to be better than they are. Figure out what space is the best at each facet and try to be as good as the best player in each space. So meaning if I want to be the best marketing organization in the world, I want to be good at performance marketing as booking is or Expedia or whoever's really great on the travel side. And those companies are just awesome. And on the brand side, I want to be as good as Apple or Nike or some of the really emotive brands that, that you know, can sort of uh, raise emotion in you when you see their advertising. And so I really try to think about for each thing we're doing, like who kicks ass at that and then try to get as good as they are. Uh, that's brilliant. I love that. So, you know, technology has had a dramatic impact on marketing over the last decade with the rise of MarTech, ad tech, and pretty much everything throwing tech into it. But it hasn't solved everything. So what problems or inefficiencies in marketing are you hoping or waiting for technology to still address? The thing that I would most like marketing technologies to create is some transparency. So I feel like marketing technologies have largely been built to bring data technology and analysis to marketers who aren't trained in that field. And that sort of let them get by on being black boxes. And so, you know, I think the thing that I haven't seen yet is a technology that says, okay, I'm going to ingest your company's data and I'm going to make an optimization decision. And then I'm going to expose to you what data elements we mined, what the elasticities of prediction were, what made this model actually tick. And, you know, typically what will happen is folks will come in and try to sell me a marketing technology and I'll say, okay, well, that technology is making a decision to suppress, suppress, for example, you know, half the eligible universe in my retargeting. Or, you know, that technology is making a decision of how much to bid on X, Y, or Z or what kind of content to serve to A, B, or C customers. How's it doing it? And, you know, someone will usually, someone well-intentioned, you know, will usually say something like, oh, it's being done by an app. Don't worry, we have a proprietary algorithm. And I'm like, okay, well, what's the algorithm do? You know, and that's often where the where the conversation ends. And so it's like, you know, I appreciate that a lot of these are, you know, have some sort of secret sauce to them. But I do think there are ways to bring some transparency to what have been black box solutions without giving away the secret sauce. And that that's what's going to be required as more, or more people with some background in analytics step into CMO seats, they're going to want to know how is this really working if it's going to make decisions. So, like, again, another sort of best of both worlds for me would be, yes, please automate that. Please make optimal decisions algorithmically. But let me know how you're doing it. If nothing else, it's a lost opportunity to, to learn something about the business. So if your you know, technology is mining thousands of data elements from my data set to make a decision based on prediction for me, which of those 1,000 data elements turned out to be relevant? Which ones were predicted? How much? You know, even if it just doesn't change the way I would use that technology, I've just learned something about my business. And so the difference between a marketing technology that's a black box and an internal team of human being data scientists doing the same work often comes down to that. It's the loss of the exploration of the data 
and what you can learn about your business through that. So I think that's the big thing that will eventually have to come. We'll have to be some, you know, window into what these things are actually doing to get people comfortable as the people using them become more savvy with technology and data. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, talking about that using, you know, people getting more savvy with the technology, you know, right before we started recording the call, you were talking a little bit about how, you know, you have big companies that are starting to realize that tools like Shopify are really how entrepreneurial companies are uniquely building their companies versus maybe relying on historical heritage technology that is complicated, cumbersome, and just doesn't work. What do you think bigger companies need to do to respond to the rise of new brands and new retail channels and kind of new everything? Yeah, you know, I see companies saying we want to disrupt from, and we, you know, we did talk about this a moment ago, and we talked about companies saying things like, I really want to disrupt from within, or, you know, I'm creating a startup within an incumbent or something like that. You know, what I would say is they really have to, you know, keep it pure in a certain way, meaning, if you want to run like a startup, you have to bring in people who know how to do that. Let them make mistakes. Let them go fast and break things to use, you know, Silicon Valley platitude. I don't think that simply, you know, this may sound against interest, simply saying, oh, well, you know, the, 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 the successful startups use Shopify. Let's just go buy it is going to get you there. It's a mindset, you know, and I think that the success or failure of these big companies in sort of disrupting from the inside will depend on their ability to adopt the mindset, not their ability to buy the same tools. So like there's a, I'll invoke our CEO again, Toby, who's just this really brilliant philosophical guy. He talked about something a lot called cargo culting. Do you know what that is? I didn't. No, I haven't, I haven't heard that one. The cargo culting is, I'll probably get the story wrong, but I think you'll get the gist of it. So like go back to World War II, this, you know, this war is being fought all over the world and some, you know, islands that have not been exposed to modern technology become the battlegrounds or at least staging grounds for some of the big World War II battles, right? And so these islands sort of get taken over and someone comes in and lays down concrete and then, you know, big, uh, you know, airplanes and jets start landing and they've got all sorts of modern technology and better food and, you know, warmer clothing than the, than the, the native inhabitants of the island have ever seen before. Anyway, you know, flash forward, war ends, everyone goes home. Years later, uh, the inhabitants of the island can still be seen standing at the end of the, you know, the strip of concrete, the runway, waving orange flags, right? And this has essentially become a religion where they believe that if they, you know, wave the orange batons, like amazing technology will fall out of the sky. And, you know, to him, that's cargo culting, right? You're doing something because you believe it will create a causal reaction when it's in fact just a correlation. So in the same way that the jet fighters didn't come out of the sky with amazing modern technologies and goods because there was someone there waving them in with yet with uh, orange flags, adopting the, you know, the veneer of startup culture or the tooling of startup companies won't get you there either. That would just be cargo culting. You really need to be able to adopt the mindset. And that's always the harder part. Yeah. No, and I think that is an awesome place to end on. So I really appreciate you taking the the time to talk with us today. Love what you have, uh, are doing with Shopify and your kind of view on the world. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much. It's been really fun. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. 
If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.